it's so bizarre this book it's brilliant it's just brilliant I, I haven't had as much fun in this as you I mean you know reading these uh, mm. these strange exotic yeah kind of hothoused mad, madness anyway we're not, let's not go too soon shall we start shall yeah we start? have you got some got, chat you can use a bit of chat a little bit of chat a bit of chat Right, welcome to another edition of Backlisted, uh, sponsored by Unbound, and coming from the kitchen table in Unbound, I am John Mitchinson, publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and as usual, we're joined by the writer and bon viveur, Matthew Clayton. Hello, Matthew. Hello, everyone. And our special guest this week to discuss Nella Larson's passing is Sarah Churchwell, Professor Sarah Churchwell. <laughs> well, thank heavens you said that. Professor, I was going to storm out of here. Professor of the for the Public Understanding of the Humanities at the University of, of London. Of London, also an author. One of my favourite books of recent years, Careless People, which yeah. is um, a brilliant reconstruction of what was happening at the time F. Scott Fitzgerald was writing Gatsby. So. A, a, literary detective work, but also brilliant reading and brilliant contextualising of that novel. And I guess that only leaves me to say, Andy, <laughs> no, 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 we're not doing that this no, week. Because, no, because... We've both read the same I thing. I don't know if you'd heard, but a couple of weeks ago, David Bowie died. I did. Uh, yeah, I did. and we were all very sad about that. Very sad. Uh, one of the things that went into circulation after David Bowie died was a list that he had pulled together about five years ago of his hundred favourite books. And I've noticed, like, on Twitter, there's a, a Bowie book group hashtag already, already for people who are going to read the challenge of the 100 Bowie books. Yeah. So I was wondering if he we was, just... I mean, a voracious reader. Everybody, one, one of the things that's come out of all the, all the people memorialising him is that he was never not with a book in his hand. Yeah. I love that story about how in his latter years he had passed anonymously around New York by carrying a Greek newspaper <laughs> so that people just think, oh, there's a Greek bloke who looks like David Bowie. Um, anyway, so we, we've got the list of 100 books. Yeah. We'll try and put it up on the website or on the Facebook page if you haven't already seen it. But I thought it would be fun just to go around and see, truthfully, how many of these 100 books we'd all read. I will show my hand first. I've read 29. And that includes... Private Eye magazine and, and Viz. <laughs> so um, I, I managed to crawl my way to 29. And actually, it would have been 28 if it wasn't for Sarah choosing Passing for us to read, because Passing is one of the books on this list. Well, I, I have to say, I also added, I, Passing was uh, added another one to me. I feel quite good. I thought I hadn't done terribly well. I've 36. Very good. Um, In but, the lead. Uh, well, it's not really a competition, <laughs> is it, Matt? Let's be honest. <laughs> But there are some funny ones, and the ones that I haven't read are funnier than the ones that I have. I mean, I, I think I've already said on this podcast I've never, I never actually read 1984. <laughs> Still not read. Yeah, yeah, 1984. Yeah. Yeah. There's books on this list that I really want to read. Really want to read Pakun by Spike Milligan, which, which I've I never have read, read. Which is great. I really want to read American Way of Death by our old bat-listed favourite Jessica Mitford, <laughs> which also I've never read. On my list, and English Journey by J.B. Priestley. I have read. And how's that? Oh, it's wonderful. So I was, I'm the paltry 29. You're 36, Matthew. How many? I clocked up 22, but what I found interesting was that lots of them, I'm really not sure whether I've read them or not. Billy Liar, have I read that? You know, I, I can't really remember. Yeah, I, I, I only have. read Billy Liar last year. Too. Having loved the film mm. for 30 years, I only read the book last year, and I actually found the book disappointing. 
Isn't that terrible? It's because Schlesinger made all, several really significant changes to the plot right. in the film, which I'm so used to that when I read the novel, I thought, oh, that's but, a shame. Yeah. Oh. This is maybe a subject for another podcast, that misremembering mm. stuff because you've seen film adaptations yeah. where the, the things have changed in the film. And I can't now. I mean, it would be hard for me to be able to remember what much of anything. I think you don't you recall about less than five percent. I mean, the plot for some novels well, I've read I thought was is it, almost it, beyond me. You know, what yeah. I thought when I was doing it was the way that I could work out whether I read it or not was whether I remember the cover. It wasn't whether I could remember the content. <laughs> yeah. whether, oh, yeah, the cover, yeah, Let me tell you, as a as a key book selling skill, so, uh, <laughs> uh, Sarah. Well, you know, I have to say I'm a, I'm a bit of a ringer here because I'm a professor of American literature and um, <laughs> Bowie seems to have quite a predilection for American literature. Don't, are, don't tore are, yourself down. There are an enormous <laughs> number of American novels on this list, surprisingly so. And I am competitive as well as American. So I have to say with some great pleasure that I have read 48 and left, and left you all in the dust. Yes, you have. <laughs> did your 48... I was cross. I, I was cross that I hadn't made 50 because I was so close to the halfway mark. Did you? Did your, 40, did, your, did your 48 include any issues of the Beano? I have never read the Beano. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's so easily or, gets a 50. Or Spike Mulligan. Spike Mulligan. So yeah. Mulligan. Sorry, so I don't even know his name. Yeah. So... <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm Mulligan too, so I am. Uh, I clearly have much reading to do. Um, oh, I've just seen one more. I have read. That. See, I have read Last Exit to Brooklyn. There you go. <gasps> Me too. That's one of 37, them. Thirty-seven, Andy. I'm really sorry. But he. So I, I, honestly, I mean, Bowie. There's a very strong presence here of 20th century American novels, yeah. and that's my field. So mm. it would mm. be really bad if I hadn't read them. Honestly, <laughs> um, it's a little bit like he took one of my courses. You know, it's like tick, is, tick, tick, is tick. there a major American <laughs> novel that you haven't read that you? Have you got a guilty secret? Oh, guilty secret. Oh, of course, I have guilty secrets. Uh, I just have to think which one it is. Um, I mean, you. you Honestly, read John Dos Passos. I don't. I, I have actually read John Dos Passos. You know why? Because, um, well, first of all, he was Upton a friend of Fitzgerald's. Um, I haven't read that much Upton Sinclair. I had to read The Jungle. Yeah, in, the thing the was, jungle. we had to read it in high Has school. Has anybody read anything other than The Jungle by Upton Sinclair? I, not that I'm aware of. But the thing was, was that in high school, I was a girly swap because I was the kind of girl who was going to go on and become an English professor. So I read books even when I didn't like them. I just doggedly made my way through to the well, end. I know and, how that and, feels. And we, <laughs> and we were given the USA trilogy. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we, now. I've liberated myself from that. I don't have to do that anymore. Who but would, I did read the essay. Who story. would like to hear me talk about Finnegan's Wakes? <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on. And Matt, our producer, Matt, we can't leave Matt out of this. How many? Um, I only got to 20. Mm-hmm. That's including the comics. And that's basically because I've read every one of those music biographies. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah. Including, including uh, the uh, Little Richard book, which is... Oh, great book. John Savage's Teenage is a fantastic book. A Wap Bapaloo oh, really? Bop is a brilliant book. Teenage? Goes I'm on terrible. Uh, it's too long. I oh, no, no, it's wonderful. And uh, 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 Sweet Soul Music by Peter Gorelick. That's yeah. a wonderful book. Yeah. And the weird thing is I've never heard a record by David Bowie. <laughs> um, so, but anyway, passing was on this list, which was a, actually was it a coincidence? It I think was it was a coincidence. Total coincidence. Total coincidence. Yeah. Um, a novel that isn't on this list <laughs> is John Bratby Breakdown. Okay, so now normally at this point or earlier in Batlisted, what we would do is John and I would ask one another which books we've been reading, and. Um, We've both been reading the same book because I read uh, a novel. You made him. I made him. I made it. Yeah, I made him. I read this novel by the painter John Bratby called Breakdown over Christmas, and I genuinely feel it's the most extraordinary, in the true sense of that word, 
novel that I've read for years. And halfway through it, I emailed John and said, please, please buy a copy of this book from Abe. Second hand. It's never come out in paperback. We have to be able to talk about it on Backlisted. So before we talk about it, I'm just going to say a bit for anyone who doesn't know who John Bratby was. He was a painter, a prolific painter. And in fact, there is a retrospective exhibition of his work opening at the Jerwood Gallery in Hastings this weekend, uh, the first retrospective of his work. Um, he was incredibly successful for a short period in the late 1950s and he was early to mid 60s he was to british painting what john osborne was to british drama wasn't he he was, he yeah. was kind of it was kitchen sink he's he painting. is a he was a leading light of the kitchen sink school yeah. a group of radical realist painters who painted things like chip fryers and cornflake packets in really thick paint <laughs> on massive canvases and so he was kind of fated from the late 50s to the mid 60s in which time he wrote four novels, of which Breakdown is the first. And then he kind of fell out of favour after the, after the mid-1960s. And, but he kept painting prolifically to the extent that he is estimated, is, est is only estimated because people don't actually know that there are at least 3,000 John Bratby canvases in existence. Which is pretty amazing. Did Tony Hancock base any characters? There are some amazing, <laughs> a bit amazing um, similarities between the Rebel, uh, the film oh, in which Tony yeah. Hancock plays a painter. Yeah. It, when asked how he mixes his paint, he says, "In a bucket with a with a big stick," <laughs> uh, and so on. Um, so, but but so so um, and Bratby's paintings were the paintings. The actual his actual paintings were the ones that Gully Jimpson the hero of the Joyce Carey novel. <laughs> hero. Well, you know, anti-hero, yeah. whatever, protagonist, antagonist, and yeah. uh, the Horse's Mouth, which was filmed in round about the sort of mid-60s. It was 59. 59. So, and this is a year before well, Bratby's novel I'm came speculating out. that Bratby, who became very famous as a result of his these massive paintings being in the film The Horse's Mouth, may have approached a publisher or have been approached by a publisher to say, well, you know, you're associated with a film of a book. Do you have any books? His biographer, I'm just going to quote his, <laughs> Bratby's biographer, who described Bratby in the introduction of the biography as, quote, he was violent, alcoholic, completely self-absorbed, pathologically shy, combined pornographer and prig. He believed that drinking and masturbation were necessary for the self-loathing he needed to make art. <laughs> and um, the journalist Andrew Lambert has said, John Bratby was a monster who possessed great talent. I knew him quite well over the last decade of his life and even contemplated writing a book about him before I learnt enough to put me off. Um, and um, I'm saying all this because the novel breakdown is clearly autobiographical. <laughs> yeah. um, and normally on Backlisted, we read the blurbs on the backs of books, as you know. I'm just going to read you the blurb on the inside jacket of the novel breakdown. It says this, John Bratby writes, this is a study of a man's decline. The man is James Brady, successful artist. Behind the lurid episodes, which include everything from near rape and murder to lunacy and a bicycle chain battle, is to be found a serious and continual explanation of the man's mental state, an exhaustive, careful, analytical explanation of why James Brady enacted the rake's progress. Superficially read, the book will present a juicy story. For those who want a more serious side to their reading will, I hope, find that also in the book. James Brady is presented unsympathetically, and the book has many 
comic passages. <laughs> now and again, I have drawn incidents from my own experience and distorted and exaggerated them into the regions of pure fiction. I shall be highly amused if anyone thinks this book is autobiographical, <laughs> for if it was, I would indeed be an awful mess. <laughs> capital A, capital M. That is the best blurb. That is um, the best blurb we've had on Backlisted. Um, actually, it doesn't let up from there. I mean, it is extraordinary, the energy of this book. The structure is a complete nightmare. It's basically the story of a breakdown, or sort of two breakdowns, because as he points out later on the book, the sensible thing to have done would have been a breakdown that would have ended in a suicide. But no, he, he then... I have to say, the book is full of extraordinary, lurid illustrations. Oh, that's, it's, that's one of the wonderful things about and the, it as the, well. Some of the prose is amazing. He also does, it put me in mind of uh, of, of B.S. Johnson, who yes. we were discussing uh, on, the, on the last podcast. He puts in a gratuitous scene, okay, <laughs> in the middle of the book, where, which is a sort of basically a murder scene, you know, lots of blood everywhere. And he is obviously self-consciously introduces it as a piece of dime novel, uh, dime novel writing. And then he, the asides to the reader are one of the joys of this book. At this point, we feel we have done our duty by the schoolboys, labourers and excitement-starved clerks of this country. We feel that we have jeopardised our claim to great literary recognition and that we may not now get the Nobel Prize for Literature. We see ourselves sadly paying in our royalties at the bank to an adoring bank clerk while the bank manager looks disapprovingly from the doorway of his office. We see that as we leave the bank, an errand boy excitedly points us out to his friend and a book critic spits at us as we pass him. Such self-sacrifice must surely be rewarded in the halls of heaven, but we are sad. We did so want to be another Faulkner or Joyce. What will our old headmaster say? <laughs> I've got. I, it's so funny. You chose that. I picked up a, a, the next thing about that. These, this is a thing that I read and thought, God, I wish I'd written this. Yeah. Okay. He says, now, dear reader, I'll present you with another small event in Brady's life and you'll have to work out unhelped whether it is relevant to our story or whether it's hoop-de-doodle. After all, if you want to pick holes, go and read a part of William Faulkner's noble novel Sanctuary, which I'll quote for you. Remember, Faulkner was given the Nobel Prize and this is considered his best work. Now get your fault-finding mind on this. Hooray! And then he goes on to say... And this is true, everybody. This is true. John Bratby speaks the truth. We have to be tolerant to enjoy literature, dear reader. Now, if you have learned tolerance, you can go ahead and enjoy the reading of the one great, and we mean great in the aesthetic sense book, that the egotistical James Joyce wrote about himself. You can pick holes in the greatest, but it won't do you any good. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. That's that's great. It is brilliant. Okay. Now, the, now, having said, you know, if you're interested in novels from the '60s and the art scene, uh, or just crazy lost outsider work, Bradby wrote four of these novels. And when I started reading them, I was thinking, why isn't this in print? Why hasn't somebody picked this up? <laughs> and as I read on, I discovered why. Which is very unfortunately, I, I have to strongly qualify my recommendation of this Absolutely. book by the fact that it contains some really unpleasant racial and domestic violence-related material, yeah. which although Bratby um, would probably claim that it's part of the method of portraying the, the, the mind, west of the world the that mind, he's writing about, the, in mind, the mind of the... the yeah, yeah I, I, it, I found pretty hard to read, actually. Yeah, particularly. I, so this afternoon I tracked down his uh, dealer, 
his art dealer, not his drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I, mean, I did. Whatever, I have to say, whatever he was on. <laughs> um, and, and that was interesting because, um, so is the, the guy that runs the gallery that deals in his work still, said that his biggest influence and the thing that he felt closest to was Colin Wilson and The Outsider. And he said he was, uh, he was friends yeah. with Colin Wilson, which I think gives it a little context. But he also said that Bratbury quite literally just tossed these off as quickly as he could. Um, <laughs> you know, he wrote the books really quickly. He was just interested in earning money, some money from them. But he actually, at one point, felt that that's what he was going to do. He was going to become a writer rather than an artist. You know, the thing about this novel breakdown, there are passages of utter brilliance, which yeah. I don't think a more literary writer would be able to access. There's all sorts of stuff about the way in which he uses colour in prose is something a painter would do. Yeah. And also how he how he's brilliant at taking little prose snapshots of scenes in a street, for instance. It's absolutely terrific. I'm- one last thing. So there's, there's also kind of in-jokes in there in a kind of B.S. Johnson way. So the artist in the book, uh, the main character in the book, passes a gallery and they see someone with really terrible paintings of hands and that's a joke about um, Bratby himself being known to being very bad at painting hands. <laughs> so I think there's lots of those. It's not just autobiography. There's lots of little jokes in there that if you knew him, you would you'd completely understand. I do feel I need to also interject for the record in case anybody is paying attention to the claims that he was making that Sanctuary is not considered William Faulkner's best novel <laughs> by anybody <laughs> Stop possibly Bratby. <laughs> I, I, I edited down what Bratby actually writes. I'll share I figured you did. Yeah, does yeah. it involve a corn cob? Yeah, it does. Yeah. 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 Of course it would involve the corn that cob. That is more or less the only thing that any of us remember. Nobody thinks that Sanctuary is Faulkner's best novel. So I found, that, so I found this thing, Matthew. I thought, uh, Matthew, I wonder if Matthew will get this to, to this before I do, but I guess you didn't. I was just talking about Pacoon by Spike Milligan one of David Bowie's 100 books. And the actor Neil Pearson is also a rare book dealer. And he's currently, he? sell- yeah, yeah. He's currently yeah. selling a first edition of Breakdown by John Bratby dedicated to Spike Milligan. And I'm just going to read out the dedication yeah. to Spike <laughs> Milligan, okay? <laughs> to Spike, 30th May 1968. I'm reading Pacoon with the midday cup of tea. I'm at this point in time, halfway through Chapter 5. Compared with Pacoon, my book has a rollicking sense of fun, a deep appreciation of the squalid, capital S, and a comprehensive cast. Not that Pacoon has not. (laughs) For reading all 336 pages of this book, which Maggie has done, there is a prize. This can be obtained by making application to number seven Hardy Road, Blackheath, when there is a full moon in conjunction with a Z in the month and in a leap year. The colour of the nature of this book is black. Wine to accompany reading, Burgundy. All the best, John. <laughs> Brilliant. Those with strong stomachs, I think. It's extraordinary. And as you say, bits of, bits of it, I think, are as good as any English novel published since the war. It's ex- there, there and, is... and clearly as a figure, I was like to repeat that the, the, the exhibition at the Jerwood down in Hastings is the first retrospective of Bratby's work. And they actually issued an appeal to members of the public saying, if you have a Bratby, please share it with us, please bring it down. And uh, Andrew Mayle, our friend Andrew Mayle, who's going to be a future guest on a Backlisted, pointed out to me that in the Reggie Perrin novels by David Nobbs, CJ has a John Bratby hanging on his office wall. So, <laughs> Apparently there's an adaptation of a Judith Krantz novel where all the art in it is 
Bratby, which sounds pretty. I want, really? I want the S. Oh, that's the best fact I've heard. I, I, I can't imagine how that has happened, but apparently it's true. I just my last little thing on Bratby is I just love because with my unbound hat on for a moment, I love to see that you know when we were thinking we're breaking new ground by putting interesting levels in for for books, funding of books. On the inside flap of this first edition, you could send off to Bratby the first two hundred readers who responded got a signed print of some of the. <laughs> <laughs> some of the lurid uh, wow. and quite explicit illustrations of the book, <laughs> which uh, which is great. I particularly like that one. That's the uh, graph paper of his breakdown, which looks <laughs> a, little, a little bit like a pair of breasts. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Funny, that's... Right. Anyway, enough of Bratby. We'll pick this up again after some marvellously witty and interesting adverts. Nella Larson. <laughs> what, a gear, yeah. what a crunching gear change. What's a gear change? I, I couldn't think of any link, tenuous or otherwise. Other so, than... listen, well, we asked, we, uh, we ask our guests on Backlisted to choose a book, and Sarah came back pretty much straight away, didn't you? Mm-hmm. With Passing by Nella Larson. And I will confess immediately that I had never heard of it. Which is the reason I chose it. And you actually made me feel better by saying, well, the reason I want to choose it is because I don't think many people in the UK have heard of it. And I hadn't heard of it. And not that many people in the US, for that matter. Um, It's growing. And it's something that people encounter if they take classes on writers like Larson. And we'll talk about the kind of context in which she appears, I'm sure. But it's only in the last 10 or 20 years that she's starting to gain any kind of traction. And um, she was one of the forgotten writers of her era for many decades. And yes, and in my experience still, is very much not known here. And since I was told that your whole raison d'etre was to bring <laughs> books back in, you know, into uh, circulation that people yeah, have yeah. forgotten I mean, about. Good I, ones, that's the thing. Well, of course, it's, exactly. We're, we're kind of... One's worth, worth rec- recovering. Yeah. So, so before we talk maybe about passing itself, I wonder if it would be helpful. Could you just tell us a bit about Nella Larson, yeah. who she was and where she came from and where she went to as yeah. well. That would be great. Yeah, well, Nella Larson is best known for two very, very brief novels that are often uh, published together. And I see several editions around our table are, in fact, these double headers. Her first novel was called Quicksand, which came out in 1928 and is reasonably autobiographical. It's very much drawn on her own experiences. And then this novel, Passing, which came out in 1929. And um, they're both about 100 pages. They're really brief uh, novellas or long short stories, if you like, even. Larson herself was the, the daughter of a white father and a black mother. Her father was Danish. Larson is spelled S-E-N. And in the 1920s in America, of course, um, it was still Jim Crow, the American name for apartheid. And Americans don't like it when I call it apartheid, but that's what it was, and that's what we should call it. And the rule, as I'm sure many people know, the law was what was known as the one-drop rule, which said that if you had one drop of, quote-unquote, Negro blood, you were legally considered a black person, and that meant that you didn't have the legal rights of a white person. So you were a second-class citizen. So if you were mixed race, you were black. And of course, that rule was instituted in the 19th century by slave owners so that they could continue to rape their slaves and create more slaves for them. And they didn't want their slaves to inherit their property if they were allowed to be white. So what they said was, you followed the condition of the mother, which was the slave. And if you had any black blood in you, uh, you were considered legally black and, and therefore 
able to be enslaved. But of course, the laws of biology don't follow the laws of racism. So <laughs> the more mixing of races that you do, the whiter and whiter that people become. And then it becomes hard to tell whether somebody has, quote unquote, black blood or not. The question really is whether they have black yeah. skin. Um, yeah. And so America got itself into a massive tangle from which it has not emerged. Of course, we still call Obama the first black president, even though he is half black and half mm. white in exactly the way that Nella Larson was. So Larson, like many people of mixed race in the era, um, found herself in uh, – it was a really difficult social position to hold. It was it was the, the academic word that people like to use is liminal, right? She was in this yeah. kind of neither here nor there and not fully embraced by the black community, not fully – not embraced at all by the white community. And uh, she actually ended up leaving America for a while. She went to Denmark where she hoped that she would find a less racist – uh, ex, you know, experience less racist people, and in fact, what she found was they, they were they were less virulently racist, but she was exoticized. So she was very much kind of yeah. she was passed around as this kind of bird of paradise and this kind of Josephine Baker, this, kind of. Jo Josephine Baker, yeah. yeah. And and so uh, she felt often uh, wrote about the fact that she just felt that she was not at home anywhere, and there was nowhere where she was accepted, and um, and the sense of shuttling back and forth between two racial identities is something that. She she deals with in both books. So both Quicksand and Passing are about what it means to be a light-skinned black woman in America in the 1920s, mm. trying to find some sense of what your identity might be. And what Larson makes it, it, it so amazing about um, and so ahead of, of her time is that she makes this very much a sexual question as well for both yeah, yeah, in yeah. both novels. It's not simply a question of race, as if race were a simple question, yeah, but it's right. not merely a question of race. It's also always with Larson about sexual identity and and it's particularly about female power and how that relates to sex and race and indeed class as well. And passing in, involves yeah. all of these things. And Larson was acutely aware of these issues. I want to come on in a minute to just talking about the artistic and literary scene that she made herself part of and indeed sprang from, mm. because I think that's an important part mm. of understanding the book as well. But before we do that, I'd like to get Matthew and John maybe to say what you thought of the book coming to it blind. I absolutely loved it and read it quickly and then mm. read it again because I, I, one of the things that is so remarkable about it is the precision of the language. I've rarely read a book where the emotional nuance of, a, of, a, of simple domestic conversations has been better realised, leaving aside, as it were, the, the, the subject matter of the book, just purely as a technical exercise in, in, in rendering thoughts, in, in responses, in painting delicate but accurate pictures of, of how those emotions change within a conversation. Mm. It's, it's a remarkable, I think, a remarkable novel and a remarkable the thing that I came away with it feeling strongly is only fiction can do this. Mm -hmm. Only fiction yeah, yeah. can unpack such a, I mean, at the time, as, as you say, Sarah, at the time, the, the idea of passing, of, of getting away with pretending to be mm -hmm. uh, a, a white for, for a black person, that was a huge issue at the time. It's still, it was it's, dangerous. it's still mm -hmm. a kind of, it, this issue is, as we all know, is still fraught. But what fiction can do that almost nothing else, that no amount, amount of sociological exegesis can, is what it feels like mm -hmm. to be that person, what motivates you to be that person who is doing that. Yeah. And, and, and then we'll go into more detail about that, the central relationship in the, in the novel, which is a friendship between two black women or women of, of mixed race. So I found it completely extraordinary. 
I liked it too. (laughs) (laughs) Matthew, what did you say? I read it on the Kindle, and that was a kind of interesting experience because I knew nothing about the book, and I skipped the introduction. I didn't bother reading the introduction, Mm. so I went straight in. To start with, it took me 20, 25 pages to even work out what era it was set in. And it's a a weird way to read a book on a Kindle like that, knowing nothing about Mm. it. You feel kind of unstable to begin with. You have no idea what direction the book's going in. How did you figure out what the era was? What was the marker? I looked it up in the end. Oh, you went I was like, I really, I was no, like, because there's a bit in it where there's a car in it. Originally, we thought it was in the 19th century, then a car appears, and I was like, God, it's in the 1950s. Right. And then, you know, I looked it up and discovered it's, it's 1929. So that was interesting. The thing I liked most about it was the dynamics of the friendship, the central yeah, relationship. Because yeah. I specifically, the ambiguity around the, the way that attractiveness, the, the role that attractiveness played in that relationship yeah. i thought that was i, I love that one of the things i'd like lo- uh, we're going to talk about i think is the difference between reading this book context free and then beginning to understand yeah. more about the context around it i had a similar experience to john which is that i read it and it made quite an impact on me and then i read it again having it's found so out sure more about it right that. yeah now we have to issue a warning at this mm. point on backlisted we'd normally try and remain spoiler free <laughs> But we we had a conversation before we started, and we said we can't really talk about this book and the subject of this book without talking about the ending. It's such an important part. So listen, if you haven't read this book and you want to read it based on what we've been talking about, Spoiler switch us off yeah. now yeah. and come back later, yeah? Okay, so bye. <laughs> now, okay, they've Don't gone now. Back, they, they've gone now, everyone. We about. So we normally, as I said earlier, we normally read a blurb from the back of the book. I'm not going to read a blurb from the back of the book. I'm going to read the first review that was published anywhere in the world of this novel. It was by a writer called Mary Reynolds. It was in the New York Telegram on April the 7th, 1929. And under the headline... Passing is a novel of longings. Pretty good. This is what she wrote. I can't say whether I'd pass or not, and you really ought to have an opinion before you give your answer to passing. It is the story of two negresses, both light enough to pass for white. One does. She marries a white husband. She always has hankering for her race, freedom, rhythm. The other marries a dark husband, has a dark child passes when convention makes it more convenient and is happy in her Harlem life. After years of separation, the two women meet. The one who went white longs for the comforts of the one who stayed black. So she comes to Harlem. Trouble results because the faker fell in love with the true one's husband. When the faker fell out of the seventh-story window, the problem was solved for Miss Larson. <laughs> and here's the spoiler. <laughs> My object, Mary Reynolds continues, My objection to the book is that Nella Larson didn't solve the problem. Knocking a character out of a scene doesn't settle a matter. The problem presented at the Negro passing is vital to me, and Nella Larson knows how to present it so. It is more a question than it is literature. Oh, that's interesting. Now, most of the reviews of this book were pretty positive, but lots of them quibbled with the ending. Mm-hmm. And we, um, Sarah and I were talking about that review uh, earlier on, and we, we assume Mary, though we don't know, but we assume Mary Reynolds was black. Given that she opens, that she yeah, doesn't yeah. know whether she, she, yeah, she, she passed pass or not. Or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would seem to be the only way to make sense of that statement, yeah. So what do we think about the ending or the endings? Well... Yeah, so it's a it, it's a complicated um, 
thing. And it's, and it's, it, I think that's actually a great, uh, a great little precis that Mary Reynolds offers there. I say that's, <laughs> I don't, I don't necessarily agree with her conclusions, but it's a terrific way of, of describing the novel and with great economy. Um, but yeah, and, and Matt was talking a moment ago about the, the central friendship of the characters. And I think it's really important that we say that it's, and one of the things I love about the book is that, so it's about these uh, two women who've known each other since they were kids. They've lost touch. They get back in touch with each other. And they both can pass, but only one passes all the time. And her husband, her very racist husband, doesn't know that she's uh, black, legally black. Um, in fact, she's described at one point in the novel as have, oh, sorry, more than one point in the novel. Uh, Larson makes it very clear she's blonde. Yeah. Right? Mm. And yeah. one of the things that we have to do, I think, is, and I, I know I'm not yet answering your question, but I think it's really no, important before we even get to the to that uh, question of the ending is to, is to realize that what Larson is saying to us is that a woman with white skin and blonde hair was considered black. Yeah. yeah. And that what she's doing is making us ask, what does this word even mean? mean? Yeah. What does race even mean in such a context? And in fact, it's something that, um, so the, the protagonist is called Irene. And it's something that Irene's husband says explicitly to her at one point uh, late in the story. Um, they're talking about passing and about how dangerous it is that Claire has decided to pass. And her husband, uh, Irene's husband, who is too dark to pass, even if he wanted to, uh, says if he understood why people passed, he would understand what race is. Mm -hmm. um, and it's and it's uh, to me, it's a really important moment in the novel where uh, Larson lays out front and center that race is not a given. It's not something that actually means anything, but America treats it as if it is both socially, politically and legally. Um, so what she has is a is a um, these two characters who have a kind of love hate relationship. They've known each other forever. They they are uh, friends, but they are um, they're they're rivals, and. What eventually, um, and, and they threaten each other. Their choices threaten each other because they're both making such different choices and they're both, uh, very anxious about the choices that the other one is making as if the one's made the right choice and maybe, um, you've made the wrong choice. What Larson does gradually is reveal that, um, it, that Irene is a very unreliable perspective. Yeah. She's not actually narrating the novel, so I won't call her an unreliable narrator. I'll get a little pedantic about that. But she, but it's closely focalized through her point of view, and she is a very unreliable, yeah. has a very unreliable perspective. And, and her point of view shifts it does shift. all the time. And it's she's really interesting. And every now and then Larson will step in and tell us that she's a little bit self-deceiving, that Irene does something that Irene doesn't quite admit, or that Irene doesn't quite want to know. But mostly, we watch Irene's thought processes as she thinks through how she feels about Claire, what she and and what she believes. Now, the the blurb that you read, um, the Mary Reynolds mm. uh, takes the position that uh, so what happens is Irene, over the course of the story, becomes convinced that Claire and Irene's husband are having an affair. Claire's very very beautiful, um, this white skinned blonde haired uh, woman, but with as the novel also makes clear, she has uh, what it calls Negro eyes. So she has these amazing black eyes mm. with this blonde yeah, hair and white face and luminous yeah. and um, and. Um, um, Irene becomes convinced that Brian and Claire are having an affair, but um, we're only ever inside Irene's head about this. So we don't have any independent confirmation. Neither Brian nor Claire ever cops to this in the course of the story. So we don't actually know whether they are for sure, although um, Irene becomes absolutely convinced of it. So um, the the reviewer, uh, Mary Reynolds there, accepts Irene's point of view, but there is some question even about that. But once Irene is, is, uh, certain that her wife, her husband is having an affair with Claire, uh, the friendship 
comes under great strain. Um, Irene becomes very worried about what would happen, um, and she just wants to get Claire out of their lives. And um, and then they're all at a party together, and Irene's very angry. And we are told, Larson tells us more than once, that Irene is in a rage. Mm. And, and Larson very interestingly uses the word consistently throughout the story, uh, the word repressed. That Irene has mm-hmm. repressed her rage, right. that yeah, she's yeah, pushing yeah, yeah, back yeah. this rage. She's determined to keep up uh, a, a false front to make sure that everything looks okay. And she goes to this party with their mutual friends, determined that nobody's going to know what happens or what, what she thinks is happening, what her suspicions. And what happens is that the um, the racist husband bursts into the party and uh, Claire is standing by an open window and through a moment of great confusion, Irene is standing right next to Claire and Claire falls out of the window. And it is very much open to question why Claire falls out of the window. Um, the... The way it's presented is, and and the way the people around uh, them at at this party um, think is that Claire either fell or the suspicion is that it was her husband who pushed her because he's racing on her, um, calling her terrible racial epithets because he's just discovered that she's black and that she's passing. Um, but there is, uh, can I, so since we're going full on spoiler, shall I just go right Let's go for what for the it. question is? So there is a very, very strong implication that Irene may have pushed, uh, there's more than one strong implication that Irene yeah, may have pushed Claire. She, uh, it was a, uh, she ran across the room, her terror tinged with ferocity and laid a hand on Claire's bare arm. Uh, one thought possessed her. She couldn't have Claire Kendry cast aside by Baloo. That's her husband. She couldn't have her free. And then the next thing is, you know, she can't remember what happened next, mm. except that Claire and disappears. She says um, a little, uh, a few lines after that. Irene wasn't sorry. She was amazed, incredulous almost. What would the others think? That Claire had fallen? That she had deliberately leaned backward? Certainly, one or the other, not dash. Yeah. So mm. it's oh, there. Surely they would only think those two things, and there must be a third possibility. And the third possibility is now it is um, what what happens is that then the other people think that it's that Baloo pushed her. Yeah. So there, it, one could say that the third possibility is that Baloo pushed Claire. But uh, since Irene is standing right there, she would presumably know that. I mean, I think this is one of the best written scenes. Mm. I mean, I think it's completely brilliant and you you're left guessing to the to the end because there's so there are so many possibilities. So I mean, I'm not one I'm not really one for people falling out of windows as a so way of, of solving novels either, I, but this is brilliant. Can I go so there I think there is a there's a tiny little clue that for me makes it clear with those two pieces that we've just read out that she does push her and it's wonderful because it's so novelistic and it's both on the same page as these facing pages in my edition anyway just before the scene that John just read out uh, Irene's looking out the window and she throws her cigarette out the window and it says the moon was just rising and far behind the tall buildings a few stars were creeping out Irene finished her cigarette and threw it out watching the tiny sparks drop slowly down to the white ground below and then when Claire falls, she says, one moment, she, Irene thinks, one moment Claire had been there, a vital glowing thing, like a flame of red and gold, mm. and then she was gone. And so she's just, uh, I believe that Larson has just foreshadowed it just a couple of paragraphs before by showing Irene throw the flame of yeah, red and gold out yeah, the window yeah. and then out goes Claire. I would also say that the husband's response 
kind of lets him off the hook. Mm. Again, this is what this is why I love fiction because yeah. you can't do this in a movie. Mm. It's just a really crap. This would be a really terrible mm. scene in a movie. Yeah, yeah. You know what? What? Who? So this is what she says. There was a gasp of horror, and above it, a sound not quite human, like a beast in agony. Nig, my God, Nig. Nig is the name. His unfortunate nickname for his wife. For, for, for his wife. And I sort of feel you wouldn't need to put that in about a beast. In, you know, if, if, mm. if, if, if you wanted to suggest that the husband had been even remotely responsible for this. Mm. We should also say that this, I'm keen to talk about how this ending was received mm. and my, my theory about why it was received in such mm. a way. But we should also say that the book actually has two yes. endings, yes. right? Um, Depending yeah. on which edition yeah. you bought relatively yeah. close to one another. They all happened in 1929. So, yes, so sorry, I meant to say that and then I got excited so, by the cigarette and I forgot. Did she, re- uh, did she revise? We don't know. We don't know. In most editions now, what you'll find is a final paragraph that is from Irene's point of view and the final two sentences are through the great heaviness that submerged and drowned her she was dimly conscious of strong arms lifting her up and that phrase also lifting her up is very pointed in this novel uh, dimly conscious of strong arms lifting her up then everything was dark and in a novel that's so concerned with racial politics of course and and we, I, we've already just heard the line where the cigarette falls onto the white ground below yeah. and now everything is dark and this movement between white and dark is the movement of the novel it's the tension of the novel so in I, most I, editions you'll see that ending I will be happy with that ending. yeah it's yeah, a good me, ending that's, right? that's, it's that's a great the one ending. I think that's what I've and got that's all I've is read that what you've also, got? Yeah, yeah, yeah. also we haven't said yet the novel opens with Irene fainting or, or feeling faint yeah. she feels close to fainting that's because right, of the is. heat and that's why she encounters Claire again for the first time in many years because she goes up to an all-white hotel to the roof to cool off. So Irene passes when it's convenient and is very contemptuous of Claire's decision to pass, but she doesn't admit to herself that she does pass when she feels like it. When it's useful, she'll pass too. She just doesn't do it all all the time and she doesn't lie to her husband and her close friends. Um, But she knows what passing is and she does it too. So she's disingenuous from the start. But so there's a beautiful symmetry to it where she's, it starts out with her feeling faint and that reconnects her with Claire and then to end with her feeling faint and everything being dark that she's somehow chosen the, the, yeah, the, yeah, um, yeah. the black side of her, uh, of her life, if, if you want to put it crudely. Um, but. So double tick, excellent in the margin. From, right, from teacher, for symmetry, for, exactly. For, for, uh, <laughs> uh, well, good patterns, you know, yeah. nice metaphors. And uh, But what happened was that in the first two uh, editions uh, um, – in 1929, there was one other paragraph, very short paragraph, and it, it originally it ended like this. Centuries after, she heard the strange man saying, death by misadventure, I'm inclined to believe. Let's go up and have another look at that window. And that was how it closed. And then that paragraph dropped out of the third edition in 1929. So all of these are happening very rapidly in 1929. And it disappeared. And there is no evidence in any of the archives to suggest how it happened. So there's no letter from Larson saying get rid of this or restore it or anything. So nobody knows why it dropped out, whether it was just a mistake or whether some editor came in and, and um, made the decision or whether Larson got in touch with her publishers and said, I think I've made a mistake, get rid of this paragraph. You know, you read the contemporary reviews and they're positive. Yeah. They are positive reviews. Larson was quite well regarded. But they all make a point of saying how they don't buy the ending in the same way that the review that we just read uh, mm. earlier. And I, I was thinking about this a lot, and I wonder whether it's because 
And this brings us on to the next thing to talk about, which is context. Mm. This was a novel produced in a very specific place and time by a writer who was very closely identified with a specific group and would have been published as a novel about the race issue, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so if that's the book you think you're reading Mm. in 1929, perhaps the ending doesn't seem you know, appropriate to what you've been reading about. But actually, we read it from all these other perspectives. I I mean, the thing that was most striking to me for a novel of this era was how how interior it is in terms of its psychology. And and actually... Going up and down building as well. Um, To view this as a novel almost a journalist i guess what i'm saying as a journalistic mm. account which mm. is how it was published and how it would have yeah. been received no i think you're right but yeah i think what you have is a is a novel that's written as you say in a context that's very much about what became known as protest fiction and the pres- it became a very strong presumption that a black writer in the 1920s writing a novel about as you say the quote unquote race problem mm-hmm. was therefore making a political statement about that race problem and was taking a position on the race problem and indeed was taking a position on how to solve the race problem the, the politics of passing and the politics of what it means to be black at this time are for the are really for the first time during the Harlem Renaissance, which is the um, yeah, what well, the era is, is known as. I just realized I haven't even said that yet. So the yeah. 1920s, <laughs> the 19 so in the 1920s, what happens is a a, a great many um, really brilliant um, African American uh, writers, artists, including Zora, uh, including Zora Neale Hurston, Hurston, including uh, Langston Hughes, Hughes um, but also some lesser known writers who are really worth uh, rediscovering. Gene Toomer who wrote an amazing book called Cain. And they were all known at the time as the New Negro Movement. But now we call it the Harlem Renaissance, partly to get Count away from Cullen. that term, Count A. Cullen. Yeah. Harlem became a kind of locus for great uh, African-American talent in much the way that Paris was uh, receiving yeah. a much European and, and uh, American, white American talent. They were going to Paris, and th- but there was this uh, concentration, a really exciting time of ideas and energy and artistic output and these brilliant black writers in particular coming forward and saying we are not just these caricatured uh, and and characters in somebody else's fiction here's our voice here's our identity here's who we are but we should also say that a that moment was pretty brief yeah. right and the second thing is that Larson said this herself that she was able to be published mm. by white publishers because the Harlem Renaissance was perceived almost like a great 20s fad. Yeah. One of the great, you know, these things that rise up and burn yeah. very brightly and then disappear. Well, you there know. was a great deal of... Yeah, because she was published by Knopf. She was published by Knopf. Recollect. How does Nella fit into this, though? Was yeah. she, uh, you know, there's only two books written by her. Uh-huh. I know she was a nurse. How does she fit in with the other literary, the rest of the literary world then? Was she connected to it? She was absolutely you... connected to it, yeah. She was friends with all of them or, or you know, acquaintances with all of them, right. let's put it that way. Um, they're all very much in the same social circles and reading each other's work and commenting on each other's work. And so you'll see W.E.B. Du Bois uh, reviews Larson, she's in conversations with Langston Hughes. She's in, so they all know each other. They're all reading each other's work. At the time that she writes, yeah, she is. She's um, twenty eight, twenty nine. She was. I think she was born in nineteen hundred. I have to look that up, but I think that's right. Eighteen ninety one. Eighteen ninety one. Sorry, she's older than I thought. So eighteen ninety one. She would have been closer to forty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the big question: What happens next? Yeah. Well, indeed. And what happened with Larson was um, a great deal of controversy. She uh, was working on her third book. She got a Guggenheim to work on her third book. And uh, she was accused of plagiarism. 
and it was a there was a real scandal and she fell off the map there's a really good biography that came out just a few years ago called In Search of Nella Larson that actually tries to lay all this stuff out because Larson really did kind of disappear. One of the th- and, reasons... And sought, and, and we should add, and sought to disappear. Yes, absolutely. You know, wasn't, wasn't right. rejected per se. Well, partly that, but, but, but part yeah. of her response to being rejected was to walk away from the whole thing. And did anyone, did it get to the bottom of the plagiarism? Is it? She doesn't strike me. She's such a careful, precise she, writer. She, she is. I, I believe it's one of those things where the jury is still out. Right. There are those who, who believe it. There are those who don't. Who was supposed to be the um, party that was plagiarised? It's a was British a, writer yeah, whose name remember. escapes me. Yeah, me too. I should know, but I can't remember. Um, not, a, not a well-known writer. Um, and were we talking a large amount of material? It's a short story. No, it was a short story. Short story right. The story as you read it is that, that was so, and she was so sort of disgusted by yeah, the way she'd been treated. Exactly, that she was humiliated and, and furious. Um, went back to nursing. And went back to yeah, nursing. But, but also done, we but, would add that the moment, this is why it's so interesting about this passing being a product of mm. a place and time, she also had a sense, we think, yeah. that the moment had gone. Yeah. yeah. Well, what happens, remember, this book, come, Passing comes out in 1929, and we've only been talking about the, the racial context, but there's something yeah, else yeah. pretty important that's about to happen in 1929, <laughs> which is the stock market's going to crash. Yeah. Um, so all of the roaring 20s comes roaring, if you yeah. will, to a halt. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the depression is on you. And believe me, there wasn't a lot of uh, spare energy and sympathy among the white people who suddenly find themselves losing all of their money and status and power, and everybody's, you know, scrabbling, and suddenly they don't they had found the whole Harlem Renaissance thing um, as part of the jazz age. It was all part of the decadence of the age to be interested in black people like animals in a zoo. It was all mm. part of this kind of carnivalesque yeah. atmosphere. And once that ends and the Depression uh, comes, then uh, that changed for most of the writers of the Harlem Renaissance, the writers and the artists found that their publishers were going out of business. They didn't have an audience anymore. They weren't able to sell their books in the same way. Zora Neale Hurston also ended up, um, you know, famously uh, ended up a maid and was buried in an unmarked grave. And Alice Walker had to go find her and rediscover Hurston. And and Walker did that a little bit earlier, and then Larson just kind of happened next. So this happened particularly to the black women writers of yep. the era. The men uh, yeah. had a little bit more luck at sticking around, um, which is partly but, what Larson is getting at. I mean, you, the, the, it seems so tragic because you don't get a, a sense that this is a woman who has uh, written herself out. I mean, this, no. The, you sort of this, no, she's the, just getting going. Yeah. So passing does okay at the time. It goes mm. through three editions and mm. it sells five or six thousand copies, mm. I believe. Yeah. And then right. and then. The book kind of disappears, doesn't it, mm-hmm. for 40 years? When More. does it, when do people start reading it and, and in writing it again? The, yeah. the thing I have to say about passing, I did think when I, when I realized how, I have an edition here where, where, which has like 80 pages of the novel and then 450 pages of essays about the novel. And I did think, well, if this book didn't exist, American academia would have invented it. Right? <laughs> in a sort of pale fire so, kind of. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. so interpretable yeah. in so many ways on so many issues which yeah. are very alive yeah. in Absolutely. the States right now. Absolutely. And, well, I, I think anywhere. Yeah. I mean, yeah. honestly, I think that that's what makes it great fiction. It is... Yeah. It is about race, but passing is every human culture. There is an equivalent 
Absolutely. Know, pe- people, whether it's class, people, yeah. m- you know, it's, it's... It's a Gatsby, you know? It, yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's sure. trying to be what you're not and, and or and what you don't feel of, you are. And the imposter syndrome, the exactly. fear of being uncovered. Exactly. Of, 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 Claire is also described throughout the novel in terms of masks consistently, that yeah. she wears this mask in this sense exactly that everybody is kind of wearing a mask. And Irene's very conscious of Claire's mask, but she's much less conscious of her own masks, but she's wearing masks too. And one of the reasons why I think it, it still reads in such a contemporary way is because, as you just suggested, Andrew, we're, we're, we're still absolutely uh, obsessed with and perplexed by questions of identity. Yeah. And we're still seeking categories. And what I love about Larson is she explodes categories. She is yeah, yeah. not – I mean, she's interested in categories because she understands how powerful they are, but she doesn't believe in them. Yeah. Um, she is attacking categories here all the way yeah, through, yeah, undermining them, um, shredding right. them whenever she can, exploding them, just saying these are not sufficient to who people actually are I, and what lives are actually I, like. I love that about the book, actually. That's probably my favourite thing about the novel is the switching constantly of point of view. Yeah. You know, yeah, like yeah. we were talking about earlier, that Irene will tell no, you the, one the, thing, the, then she'll tell you something else that doesn't the reaction, match. The reaction yeah. shots yeah. are amazing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Like, it is. It's really when, cinematic. When she, when she, you know, she, she loses control of her voice in a crucial scene with her husband. Yeah. Also, a reading about Noah Larson's biography, she also, she, she left her husband mm-hmm. or her husband left her. There was an infidelity in her yeah. marriage and how, I mean, there's definitely autobiographical elements in, in, in the yeah, book. In but, both books, yeah. But that extraordinary thing of she loses control of her voice and then, you know, his reaction to her losing control, mm. and in it, that's in the moment that she knows what's happened between yeah, Claire yeah, and yeah, Brian, yeah, her yeah, husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's mm. great. Now we are keen now to <laughs> having covered all On these the issues of our seats, Matthew. Do you have anything tenuous to bring to the conversation? <laughs> well, it's not really that tenuous. I think it's kind of this week. I wanted to after last week's, frankly. <laughs> yeah, this, so this week's far more emasculate. I mean, ridiculous. Yeah. Tenuous I didn't want to, to the humiliate point of, Andy. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got nothing like that. I kind of what I was interested in this book was why, when I read it on the Kindle, it felt so contemporary. Why I didn't immediately know when it had been written. So I just wanted to find out what else was published that year. Oh, 1929 um, was a good year for American literature. Yeah, so there, I mean, there's some extraordinary books. Uh, there's, you know, there's The Sound and the Fury, the Faulkner book, there's Farewell to Arms. Sound and the Fury is considered a much better book than Sanctuary for the record. <laughs> okay. uh, Take uh, note, Jake. <laughs> but indeed, but also, but also Farewell to Arms. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But the sort of two that I thought were kind of interesting and had some relevance to passing was um, Virginia Woolf's The Woman of One's yeah. Own. Uh, a very God, I love this. And All Quiet on the Western Front. But also, more extraordinary, Edgar Rice Barrows' Tarzan, I think Tarzan and the Lost Empire was mm. published there, oh. which also kind of really, I think, just shows the incredible range mm. of views about mm. well, all the stuff that's in there, race, yeah, yeah, yeah. gender. Um, it was really going on well, in the, 1929. The first, the first Tarzan novel is about 1912, 1913, isn't right. it? We should say as well that, that um, Nella Larson um, probably read uh, many of those books. Oh, she worked as a librarian, mm-hmm. right? She was the children's yeah, yeah. librarian, at the, the head children's librarian at the New York Public Library. That she had read Ulysses mm-hmm. very early on. She got somebody to bring her a copy mm-hmm. of, of Ulysses. And actually she died. She dies in 1964. <laughs> And um, she just dies in bed. Yeah, but she dies in bed. She doesn't turn up for a shift at the hospital. And they find her a week later where she's sitting up in bed reading. Yeah. So what will happen to uh, one week where we'll be sat around the table, where's Andy? <laughs> <laughs> He's not here. 
Finnegan's Wake again. The final thing that has been interesting me this week is really thinking about that Bowie list again mm. and thinking about us, what we're doing here, which is kind of recommending books to people. So I asked my brother, Ewan, who is, uh, he's just a guy that knows this stuff, if he could tell me... The reason why he knows this stuff is he wrote, uh, he wrote an amazing book called The Story of Writing called The Golden Thread, The History of mm. Writing. So I asked him what if he could tell me when he thought the earliest record of someone recommending books to other people was when was the first recommended reading list and he came up with a, he came up with Cassiodorus in the 6th century um, <laughs> who was uh, an Italian uh, monk uh, he was also prime minister he was kind of the equivalent of the prime minister in Italy for a while and he wrote a book called Institutioni forgive my pronunciation, mm -hmm. which was a reading list for monks at his monastery, which was, this is what monks need to read. That's how, how many of them have you read? <laughs> <laughs> very poor yeah. Well, listen, yeah. thanks, everyone. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Sarah, so much. Brilliant. For, uh, br this brilliant choice, everybody, that book. If you, if you just switch back on, you go into the ending, <laughs> yeah. right? So after the aliens land, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> but passing, <laughs> passing by Nella Larson. Get through the car chase. <laughs> <laughs> Passing by another last, we should also say you could buy that for your Kindle for less than a pound. Yeah. Uh, so please do. It's a wonderful, wonderful novel. Thanks for giving us uh, an opportunity to read it. My pleasure. And uh, you can find us on the usual places Backlisted uh, Podcast on Facebook, at Backlisted Pod on Twitter, and on the Unbound site, unbound.co.uk. See you next time. Bye. 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 You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks. <laughs>